Hello, this is Helga Edwards, and I'm here with my husband Bob. Today we will be discussing Genesis chapters 14 and 15. In chapter 13 of Genesis, we read that Lot and Abram separated, with Lot moving his flocks, herds, and tents to the land that seemed most fertile, on the plain of the Jordan River near Sodom. In chapter 14 of the book of Genesis, we see that Lot becomes caught up in a war of insurrection between the kingdom of Sodom and other kingdoms that ruled over it. Sodom is defeated and Lot is taken captive. Hearing about his nephew's plight, Abram comes to Lot's rescue. Abram and his men defeat the enemy in battle and liberate Lot along with other inhabitants of Sodom. The king of Sodom seeks to reward Abram for this victory, but Abram refuses so that all will see that God was the source of Abram's victory and the ultimate provider for all of his needs. Abram is met by the king and priest of Salem, later called Jerusalem, who brings bread and wine and blesses Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Lot, who had chosen the best land for himself and had fallen into captivity, was delivered by Abram, who looked to God alone as his strength and provider. The story continues in Genesis chapter 15, where God again speaks to Abram about the future of his descendants. We will be reading Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6 and 12 through 16 from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, beginning at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs, and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Here ends our reading of Genesis chapter 15. Before examining the meaning of this passage, it is once again necessary to identify the use of androcentric language in some of our English translations of the Bible. In the English Standard Version, or ESV, of Genesis 15, verse 4, God is portrayed as making the following promise to Abram. 
This man, referring to one of Abraham's servants, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. In the ESV, God specifically promises Abraham that he will be given a son so that he will have an heir. In the NRSV, or the New Revised Standard Version of the same verse, however, we read, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. The language of the NRSV does not focus on the gender of the heir, but rather on the fact that Abraham will have his very own biological child, even though his wife Sarah was unable to conceive. Which language better reflects what we find in our oldest available Bible manuscripts? Which is more accurate? In the language of the Greek Septuagint, written between the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC, God makes no mention of a son in Genesis 15.4. God simply promises that Abraham's inheritance will not go to his servant, but rather to another. The word simply means one besides what has already been mentioned. The grammatical form of the word used leaves the gender of the heir undetermined. In the Targum of Onkelos, written in the 2nd century AD, the Aramaic text uses language emphasizing that Abram's heir will be related to him. As we continue to read the Genesis story, we eventually find out that Abram and Sarai do miraculously have a son. This is not, however, the language of God's promise in chapter 15, verse 4. In our oldest available manuscripts, Greek and Aramaic, the gender of the heir is undetermined. So why might the ESV use specifically masculine language? A number of men involved in the ESV translation of the Bible are part of the self-titled Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. This group rigidly believes that patriarchy, the rule of men, is God's will for humanity. One of the former presidents of this council explained that the contemporary word for patriarchal is complementarian. The council uses this softer sounding language to represent the patriarchal tradition that it is a man's role to lead and a woman's role to be subject to that leadership. This patriarchal thinking seems evident in the many androcentric interpretive decisions made by the ESV Translation Committee. We've already seen numerous examples in the book of Genesis where gender-neutral language in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic has been translated into English as if it was specifically masculine. Genesis 15.4 appears to be another instance of such a choice. Why say that God promised Abram a son? This language has the appearance of indicating that it was God's idea for leadership to pass from one generation to the next exclusively through male heirs. In other words, fathers should rule over their households and this leadership should be passed down to their oldest son. This tradition certainly developed early on in many ancient cultures, but this does not mean it was the will of God. In fact, in an accurate reading of Genesis chapter 3, one based upon our oldest available manuscript evidence, the rule of men over women in marriage is described explicitly as a tragic consequence of sin. As we've seen in our earlier podcast episodes, the language used of Adam and Eve 
in the book of Genesis prior to humanity's fall is consistently egalitarian. They were both created in God's image and both shared dominion over all creation as equals. In the New Testament, we find that the equal status of women and men is restored through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Christ, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female. And we read that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. In 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands are reminded to treat their wives, quote, as heirs of the gracious gift of life, unquote. This chapter of Peter's letter is so badly altered by some English translations that the original Greek message is obscured. In chapter 2 of the same letter, Peter tells us that every Christian, male and female, is part of God's royal priesthood. Neither spiritual service nor leadership in the church was ever intended to be strictly a masculine role. The Bible certainly recognizes that patriarchy, the rule of men, was an early development in fallen human culture, but this does not mean that it was the will of God. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus went to the cross to liberate us from sin and its consequences, including oppressive traditions like patriarchy. Patriarchy is the cultural backdrop of the Bible, not its message. If inheriting power through patriarchal lineage is not the focus of Genesis 15.4, then what is? Abram is childless. He expects that after he dies, everything will be left to one of his servants. God tells him that this is not the case. God promises to miraculously give Abram and Sarah their very own biological child, their own issue. They will have their own descendants and it will be a miracle. This is God's promise. When Abram believes this promise, the Bible tells us that God considers Abram to be righteous. This idea has tremendous implications in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul explains that people cannot get to heaven by their own efforts. They need to trust and follow Jesus Christ. If not for the death and resurrection of Jesus, our sins could not be forgiven. If not for the help of God's Holy Spirit, we could not learn to love one another as God has loved us. When we turn away from doing what we know is wrong and trust that Jesus died on the cross to take away our sins, it is credited to us as righteousness. Our sins are forgiven and we become part of the family of God, or as Peter says, heirs of the gracious gift of life. In other words, for followers of Jesus Christ, righteousness comes through faith, just as it did for Abram. Near the end of Genesis chapter 15, we also read that God's promise to Abram's descendants will not take place until hundreds of years have passed. Why such a long wait before they could inherit the land of Canaan? God explains in verse 16 that the iniquity or wickedness of the people currently living in the land was not yet complete. They would be given hundreds of years to turn away from sins such as idol worship, sexual crimes, 
and child sacrifice before God would finally bring an end to their evil practices through an act of judgment. We find similar language in the New Testament concerning the final judgment of God on humanity. We're told that one day Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will return to judge the living and the dead. We read this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Skeptics who doubt this prophecy wonder why it has taken so long for this biblical promise to be fulfilled. As it was with the people of Canaan, the Apostle Peter tells us that God is giving the people of this world ample opportunity to turn from what they know is wrong and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior before his return. Peter explains this in the following New Testament passage. But do not forget one thing, my dear friends. There is no difference in the Lord's sight between one day and a thousand years. To him, the two are the same. The Lord is not slow to do what he has promised, as some think. Instead, he is patient with you, because he does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants all to turn away from their sins. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will disappear with a shrill noise. The heavenly bodies will burn up and be destroyed, and the earth and everything in it will vanish. Since all these things will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people should you be? Your lives should be holy and dedicated to God. We read that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-11. through 11. A life that is holy and dedicated to God is one that is based on faith, trusting that Jesus Christ died for our sins, and trusting that God will help us learn to love one another as God has loved us. All who do this are considered children of Abram and part of the family of God.